the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And good evening. We are back once again. Tonight, we're going to be talking to Rob Mercer, who is the uh, proprietor, the founder of the Miami Valley UFO Society. And interestingly, I learned that he had been a member of the Roundtown UFO Society or, or group, Roundtown being Circleville, Ohio. And it was important to us in the Roswell case simply because uh, a farmer in the area found a Raywind target and a weather balloon just in the days before the Roswell case broke, and he uh, called the sheriff, talked to the local newspaper. They all were able to identify the weather balloon and the Raywind target for what it was as opposed to some extraordinary craft. And I had gotten a lot of help from members of the Roundtown UFO Society for their uh, assistance in that part of the investigation. So I was I was delighted to learn that uh, Rob Mercer, who is the guest tonight, is uh, or had been or he still is a member of the Roundtown UFO Society. So uh, Rob... Can you tell us a little bit? Well, first, welcome, and then can you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Well, thanks for having me on. I uh, I got I've been a you know a follower of the UFO movement as far as reading about it and watching my whole life. But a few years ago, as my daughter started to get a little older, and you know I had a lot found myself having some more free time, I started taking it a little more serious, and I was listening to Coast to Coast one night, and they had a move on. Um, chief on there that was basically advertising, looking for people to join up and become investigators. So I went ahead and bought the book and, and went through the whole deal and became one pretty quick after that. And that's where I met the guys from around town and joined up with their group. And they kind of gave me the idea of starting this group since I'm over on the east side or west side of Ohio, over here near Wright Pat. Pete Harninger, you probably know him if you've dealt with him. He uh, he had the idea, you know. You, he told me you need to start a group over there and try to try to get people to tell some stories. 
so that's what I did. And he is a real good guy. I he, he's taught me a lot so far. I uh, stuck with MUFON for I was there for about two years investigating. Worked my way up to state section director. Was very busy. I think I had close to 140 cases in those two years. Which keeps you busy a lot. Of those 140 cases, how many turned out to be mundane? Did you find explanations uh, for? Probably 90 percent of them. I mean, it's it's real hard now with all the drones in the air. You know, it's to get to get good cases. I think there's just so many different things out there that, that can be faked anymore. It's it's real hard. I mean, I say 90%, but, you know, there's always doubt on even those. But, yeah, you know, I had a few, though. I had a few that the, the witness was so reliable, and, you know, you just when you're talking to them, see it in their eyes, you know, the bigger craft that they see. But I would say it was probably about 90% for me. And that kept but I had to, I had to give it up. Because you were too busy? Too busy your... working and, yeah, busy with work, and it was a lot of time as far as deadlines when, you, when you're doing that. And it probably we, cost a little bit of money, too, because uh, you, know, I, you had to travel around to talk to the people and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. we're. I mean, Ohio's a big state with a lot of people and a lot of sightings. And even to this day, there's still only four investigators here, four or five. And, you know, with 88 counties, you find yourself stretched pretty thin. So I was. I pretty much had the whole eastern half of Ohio, or western half of Ohio down to the Ohio River up to I drove up to Toledo before. I mean, it was, I've done a fair bit of uh, driving on those. So it was, you know, it was time consuming. I'd probably devote 20 hours to each case. And when you're working full time plus and you have a family, it's, it's tough. I plan to go back to it in a few years when my daughter gets out of college and I have a little more free time. <laughs> and a but little bit more money with the daughter in college. <laughs> right. I don't discourage anybody from doing it. It was, I mean, I enjoyed it. I don't regret ever doing it. Like I say, I'll go back eventually, but if anybody's out there is thinking about doing something like that, I, I don't discourage them. Well, I think that, you know, it's a, a hobby that can just suck a lot of time and money and energy out of you if you get really involved in it. Yeah, but that's the first thing Pete told me from around town, that uh, don't let it consume you. And I find myself doing that a lot. It's just, well, you know, you got to step away from it for a while. Well, we're going to have to take a quick break here already. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the Socorro case, which is how we all ended up uh, talking to one another and why there's been so many uh, uh, programs about the Socorro case in the last uh, few weeks. Uh, there's more information available at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. So if you need additional information, that's a place to look for it. And we will be back uh, in a very short time, so stick around. This is Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. Now in Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Gibbs A. Williams, Ph.D., is a practicing psychoanalyst, supervisor, researcher, and author in New York City. Much of his life has been dedicated to understanding nature and the uses of meaningful coincidences or synchronicities. His radical and original non-Jungian, non-mystical, non-magical theory of synchronicities illuminates much of the fog surrounding this challenging and perplexing topic. 
His ideas and manners are fresh, presented in a style that is both entertaining and highly informative. He is also an expert on crisis intervention, specially focused on violence reduction for the police and citizens, mastering anxiety, frustration, and stress without the use of medication, and effectively preventing and treating heroin addiction. Dr. Williams can be contacted at his email address at gwwilliamsny11 at aol.com or visit his website at www.drgibbswilliams.com. This is Johanna Carroll, host of Dialogue with Divinity on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. While walking along Kanapali Beach in Maui this past year, I kept discovering all these shells and coral in the shape of hearts. My Dialogue with Divinity was very simple. Do you want me to do a retreat to heal people's hearts in Maui next year? And of course, the answer was yes. As a master spiritual teacher, I am offering you a neat retreat called Rise, May 8th through the 12th, 2017, and the chance of a lifetime to rest at a five-star resort for five days and experience a spiritual renewal of your heart and soul. Kanapali is one of the top five beaches in the world. This stunning resort has undergone a $40 million renovation. I walked the entire property, checked out the room choices on your behalf, and I must say it is stunning. Our conference room faces the ocean with sliding glass doors. Maui is known as Mother Maui because it is a soft, gentle, healing energy. In the embrace of Mother Maui, you will feel yourself rising from the limitations of an ordinary life to an extraordinary journey of peace, bliss, and harmony a greater sense of clarity. Our RISE retreat ignites renewal in the sacred elements of air, water, earth, fire, and wind. There's plenty of free time to enjoy all that Maui has to offer. A small deposit is required now to reserve your space as this retreat, it will sell out. For more details, please go to johannacarroll.com and register today. Aloha, and I'll see you in mystical Maui. I'm speaking with Rob Mercer, who is a uh, UFO researcher from a long time ago. He is the host, I guess, of the Miami Valley UFO Society website, which you all can take a look at. And that's going to become important here in a few moments. We have Rob today because of the Socorro UFO case, which I said just before the break. And what happened is I had called or emailed uh, MUFON's public affairs and asked them if they had some people who would like to appear on the program. And they'd sent me the name of Ben Moss and Tony Angeli Angiello. And they talked about Socorro and said some things about Socorro that, that I had not been aware of and, and suggested that they had the real Project Blue Book files. And they had gotten them from, gotten that material from a fellow named Rob Mercer. So I contacted Rob Mercer and he was very, very helpful in answering my questions. And this is how we ended up with uh, Ray Stanford on the program and uh, Carmen uh, Murano, who had uh, been the man who had those files. So I'm going to let Rob kind of explain to you how he ended up with literally boxes of files from Project Blue Book and some of the things that he might have found in there and how it all kind of relates to the Socorro case. So, Rob... You're yep. going. You're going to garage sales, and you find a box of. No, you know, uh, you you uh, were were following Craigslist, I guess it was. So I'll let right. you tell it because I'm getting the story screwed up here. So you were, right. you were reading. You're reading Craigslist. So explain how that all came about. Okay. Well, like I say I live in I live in Springfield, Ohio, which is a little east of Dayton, 
I uh, worked in that area as a plumber, which I still do, but I worked over around Wright Pat for about 15 years, about 15 years ago. And, you know, I was going to people's houses, first of all, you'd, you'd be stunned, well, probably not, but how many people collected things and studied UFOs? I mean, it's it's a bit, big part of the population. It would always amaze me how many houses I'd see nice collections in, books, folders, and especially around the base, and people that even, a lot of people that I would, I'm assuming work there where their houses were located. But at that point, I've always kept an eye out at garage sales, and I'd find UFO magazines and books. You know, I have a pretty good collection. And I started going to the thrift stores. There are several of them in that area, and you always find stuff there. All the same thing. I'll go in and find UFO books all the time, photos from Wright Pat. I I found some fairly neat things. I don't really have time to explain on here. But in 2013, I had been doing it for a while. I had a, I would just get on there and do a search in our area for UFOs. But but by getting getting on there, you mean onto the internet, onto Craigslist? On the the Craigslist. Just go to their website, you know, and bring up your area, which is, for me, it's the Dayton area. And uh, I would literally in the for sale section just type in UFOs. And I had been checking it for a year, two years probably. Every couple, you know, every week or two, I just, when I think about it, do it. Well, I had just come back from one of our monthly MUFON meetings in 2013 and sat down that night and wasn't ready to go to bed and decided I'd do a search again. And lo and behold, the ad popped up saying a guy had Project Blue Book files that uh, belonged to a uh, lieutenant, I think it said a captain in Project Blue Book. And he had a a spread, and I've got the ad on my website if people want to look at it. So MiamiValleyUFOSociety.com. You just go to the Inside Project Blue Book page, and I've got it loaded with materials. But he had a, a spread laid out with some photos in a folder. He said there was a film and a few other items, and he had, he won $100 for everything. So this was about midnight. I sent him a text. He had his phone number on there. Went to bed kind of excited. And the next day at work, he responded to my text message and told me he still had them. I got on the phone with him. He said he still had them. And he more or less reiterated the story that he had bought a pile of lumber at an auction in a garage in Fairborn a few months back. And in that, when he was cleaning out this lumber at the end, there was a box under it, and he took it with him because he was the last person in there. It was his job to get the stuff out of there. And that's where the uh, – all those materials had come from. I talked him into holding them for me after work, and I drove down there, which is the Centerville area, which is south of Dayton, a suburb, and went in, looked at them, and they were what he had told me. I could tell they were, you know, period from the 60s, 40s, 50s, and 60s photos. You know, was, they were put together in binders from that area. There were some loose papers and basically everything he described. So I gave him what he wanted for him and took off out of there. Um, as soon as I got in my truck, I made sure I screenshot the ad on my phone because I did not want to not have that in case I ever got in trouble for having these files. I mean, that's just, I guess it was my instinct. Got home, started looking through them, spent a few days. I called the guys from Rufo's, uh, around town over a couple one of our, uh, state director from MUFON came over and we spent a Saturday looking through them and we became convinced that they belonged to, a the name on there the most was a Carbon Murano. You know, you had him as a guest. He was he had signed a lot of the items, even though some of them, you know, an internet search showed when he was there in the late '60s. But there are a lot of things in here from the '40s and '50s. But well, let me let me jump let me jump let me jump ahead here because because this is what fascinates me. So you've got the name Carmen Murano. You know, yep. he's a lieutenant. Um, I think uh, Ben Moss sent me a picture of him in, in the uh, Blue Book office with uh, Quintanilla, Quintanilla yep. in the in the background or in the foreground and all yep. of that sort of thing. So clearly, this guy, this this Carmen Morano, had been a member of Project Blue Book at some point. Right. So how do you get from the name in the files to actually finding the guy? Well, that's where I was worried, and it cost me money to do a, a good search to make sure. But, uh, I, you know, I was pretty sure it was him, so I did some real estate searches in Dayton, found out houses that Carmen Murano that was in the Air Force lived. Um, got, I 
basically bought a subscription to Ancestry.com. So you can't, there's not many military records available on just a general internet search. So I went through Ancestry.com and was actually able to track him down. He found out where he was from in Pennsylvania. And stories with what I was reading about him that started to, to match up. And I, at that point, I was fairly certain that I had the right guy. But I still had to worry about finding, you know, approaching him. I found out a name where a house that he had, the house that, the guy that, they had sold a house in Fairborn two years, two or three years before. And then it had, it had changed from his name to another name. They went and moved to, an, bought an, that person bought another house nearby and sold that house in like July of 2013, which was the few months back that the guy had told me from September. So everything was matching up here. So I decided to, I made a trip over to Fairborn, which is, you know, right outside the gates of uh, Ripe Hat, and found the house that they had moved out of. And sure enough, it was a, I think I may have sent you a picture of it. It was a two-story garage. And that's what the guy told me. It came out of a two-story garage. So I, I knew right then I was at the right place. I mean, you don't see a lot of two-story garages, for starters. And uh, everything, it's just the kind of place where you would store something and forget about it. So, you know, I, at that so point, got, I, got, I knew I was the right guy. You got his name. Uh, you found his house. He's obviously moved out of there. He's gone from that location. Yep. How do you get from that house to Carmen Moreno, where he lives today? Well, I assumed that he, the, the name, I'm guessing, was his wife's. They had bought another house there in Fairborn. I did several. I drove my wife crazy doing drive-bys on this house. We would Anytime we went to Dayton for anything, you know, it's, we got to drive by and see if I see him outside. I was hoping to catch him outside mowing grass. I had his picture. I had a younger picture from off Ancestry.com I, when he was in high school. I had things to go on. I would know if I seen him just to know I was on the right track. And I, I'd never seen him out there, and I probably did that for six months. <clears throat> I had his phone number, though. I just didn't have I, – I wanted to call – I did not want to share him with anybody outside of our little group until I talked to him, until he knew I had him. I, just, I didn't want to get him in trouble. Um, I didn't want to lose him either, but I didn't want to get him in trouble. So it kind of I, – I hesitated calling him for a long time. And Pete from the Roundtown group, he's former uh, National Guard. He and I were talking about it. He said, he told me that he ought to give him – maybe he could give him a call since he you know, had a little military experience which is the same reason I gave you his contact information, by the way. I knew he would relate to you very well with your military background. And Pete gave him a call for me that night and called me right back and said that was his wife's house and that they had divorced several years ago. But his wife was happy to give him his phone number. So he said, you want me to call him? You know, I think at the time he was in Alabama. You want me to call him in Alabama? I said, yeah, go ahead. So he called him and about 10 minutes later, he called me back and told me that the lieutenant wanted me to give him a call, which is what we started calling him after that. So, you know, I was a little nervous. Like I say, I didn't know what kind of trouble you're going to get into with something like this, first of well, all. Well, let's, 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 let's take a moment here because I think what's very interesting is that you've got a box of material. None of it's marked classified. None of it's marked secret, so it's clearly stuff that's uh, been collected legitimately from the Project Blue Book files. Uh, you've yep. now tracked this guy down, which I find amazing that you you were able to find the house. We were able to find the um, um, ex-wife and all of that and get to him in Alabama. And now you've talked to him in Alabama. It's the right guy. And you've got all this material. So uh, what? So you, you now call him on the phone and what do you learn? I call him at night and even then he's a little – he's – didn't fill him in a whole lot. He just said, a guy's got some papers of yours, and he wants to talk to you. So when I called, I probably spoke with him three hours on the phone that first night. Um, we talked a little bit about you know UFOs, but I explained to him where I had got them, and his first reaction was, I must have left them behind when we divorced you know, by accident. In the way they were stored up there, you know, somebody set them down, something got set on top of it. You know how it is to lose something like that in a basement or a, an attic. But he, he had no idea that I had him, but he was all right. After he thought about it for a couple of minutes, he's like, yeah, hey, I guess that's all right. I mean, I said, hey, you know, if you want them back, I'll give them to you. He's like, no, you can keep them. So we continued to talk about UFOs for a while. 
and you, you've talked to him, you know a lot of this story, but th- at least what he told me is when the program shut down there in 69, he left UFOs. He closed this stuff up, took his box home because he thought, you know, it might be need to look at in the future, but he more or less I, got out of I reading think about them whatsoever. I think he also suggested that it was stuff that he didn't think should be thrown away. It should be right, stuff right, that should yeah. be retained, which is good for us. Uh, oh, because yeah. because it, it provided us with a lot of good information, but I, th- I think that was a an admirable admirable thing to do as well. That he he thought enough of the material they had collected that it shouldn't just be destroyed in some fashion. So he's so you're talking to him for three hours, and he lets you know that he has more. Yeah, At the, you know we spent talk, a good bit of time talking about politics and just current affairs, but I also I asked him in our conversation, you know the, the obvious question his opinion on Roswell. You know, I was just trying to pick his brain to see what he still remembered. And the reason I know he's not lying about not following it is he had, I mean, believe it or not, he had never heard of Roswell, the case. I mean, that, at that point in 2000, and by this time it was spring of 2014, he had never heard of Roswell, the, the UFO case out there, which is a hard thing to do, in my opinion. Yeah, so he really severed problem. himself from it. <laughs> Yeah, in today's environment, not knowing about Roswell is very difficult not to do with all the TV programs and the books and the magazines and everything like that. We're going to have to take another short break here. Uh, When we come back, I think we're going to talk a little bit about what stuff you found in the files, not only the Socorral information, but other things you found, including movie footage of UFOs and that sort of thing, which is fascinating, and all is available at your uh, your website, which is the Miami Valley UFO Society Take a look at that, and you'll see some interesting stuff. So we will be back in just a few moments. So stick around. <laughs> Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? Well then, meet Dr. Kimberly McGeorge and her cutting-edge breakthrough knowledge that combines science with possibility. Dr. Kimberly brings real-life answers and healing to those open to alternative solutions. She teaches solution-based programs and classes that will change all areas of your life forever. Specializing in conscious creation, intuitive readings, and energy medicine, you can rapidly shift health, relationships, business, and money and abundance challenges quickly. Receive her best-selling book, Secret to Everything, at no cost by going to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone. That's right. Transformation can start now. Just go to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone and receive Dr. Kimberly's book for free. While science pursues fact, magic accesses the quantum level, bridging random facts to form truth. As long as science and magic remain separate and polarized, the truth cannot be known. I'm Gwilda Wiecka. Join me on the Science of Magic radio program, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. During each episode, I'll be speaking with experienced and respected scientists and mystics. From astrologers to astronomers, from medical doctors to shaman, the scientific method to dowsing and intuition, we'll weave together information from seemingly divergent practices to promote unity and enlightenment. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, and the Science of Magic right here on the Mutual Broadcast Network. For more information, visit www.thescienceofmagic.net. 
I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. And we are back talking to Rob Mercer of, uh, of MUFON and the Miami Valley UFO Society, talking about these boxes of material now. He's recovered from a former Project Blue Book officer that we had on the program in a couple of weeks ago. What he's found in the boxes, uh, what interested me that got me started in this, of course, was the material about uh, Socorro that apparently was well-organized in there as well. And as, as, as he told me, he wasn't there when uh, the Socorro case came down, but he had saved this material that had been collected by the officers who had preceded him in that position. So you've talked to the guy now. He tells you he has additional boxes and that you can have them if you want them. Is, is that correct? Yep. After uh, Towards the end of our conversation there, he said, uh, you know, you, you really sound like you like this stuff. I said, oh, I do. I do. That's, you know, it's a hobby. He said, well, I've got, back where I live in the summer, he said, I've got several more boxes that you can have. I said, you do? I said, yeah. He said, oh, yeah. He said, said, I don't really have anything to do with them. I don't have any family or anything. He said, you're you're welcome to them. I said, well, I can can meet you up there and pick them up sometime, which is in upstate Pennsylvania. And uh, I told, he he said, no, I'll just mail them to you. He said, just give me a call in a couple weeks and remind me and, and I'll send them to you. So I went, you know, I was a little bit excited about that. I wasn't sure if he would follow through, you know, right off the bat. But uh, I I gave him a month and called him back. And he remembered and said, yeah, I'll, I got to sort through them here and get, to, you know, get the garbage and stuff out of them. And I'll send them down to you. And I said, I want, I'll take the garbage. I said, the ink pens, you know, anything you have, you know, it'd be nice, to, you know, as a collector to have that, those items. So he said, okay, I'll give you everything. And he even gave me, mentioned he'd send me his buttons. You know, he, he had been promoted after he left Blue Book. He was promoted to captain. And yeah, I know he was sent out in Dakota somewhere to, to the missile silo he worked at. But he sent me a lot of his uh, buttons, patches, things like that in those boxes. Well, it's interesting, but, that, you know, it's interesting that he didn't want to retain some of that memorabilia. Um when, but just before, interesting, and it's, I, I digress here, but, but it's kind of interesting. When, when I was about to go to Iraq, I uh, uh, talked to a number of friends of mine that had been in Vietnam with us. And we can wear combat patches you know, on, on our uniform. You can wear a patch if you served in combat with it, even though you're not assigned to that unit anymore. And so I wrote to him. And I said, anybody got an old uh, First Aviation Brigade patch that they wore in Vietnam? And I got a couple of those. So I was wearing First Aviation Brigade patches that had been in Vietnam while I was serving in Iraq. So I, I find it a little bit surprising that he didn't want to keep some of that memorabilia. But he sent the whole kit and caboodle to you. Well, I mean, it, it appears to just be his captain items i don't have anything from when he was with blue book as far as that goes it it's this stuff seemed to be new and unused or you know hardly used but it was mainly you know captain pins yep. uh, patches and they're off of they're blue off of blue uniforms the, okay, so, some of the so, patches were so you've got these boxes of stuff oh yeah what, it was like christmas what was the most exciting thing you found in those boxes well, when they showed up, first of all, I come home, work, and they're sitting on my front porch, and they are heavy. Um, I bring them in, open them, and it's just stacks of papers that look like they've been cut. You know, in a deck of cards that's just been cut, cut, moved, and stacked. They weren't real organized. I was finding, uh, I mean, a lot of, and keep in mind, I'm, I'm not a blue book expert, and especially then I was not a blue book expert. So I open them up, and I'm seeing blue books that say blue book on them. 
you know, right then I'm excited because I've never seen anything like this before. I have now on the Internet. I know things like that do exist. Film canisters, slides. There were, uh, I mean, in the first box I got, there were those three books with all the cases from 47 to 69, you know, listed, unredacted. Nothing in here is redacted at all. Complete folders. I think I sent you a copy of the two from New Mexico there. Yes. There were probably about a dozen other complete folders like that with actual three-digit case numbers on them, so I knew they were old. You know, I mean, they have to be before Murano's time of even when he said he put the stuff together for the press. This stuff had to already be put together because of the case numbers and the way they're just the way they are. Um, There was just books, books from NASA about physics. You know, the books that as I'm looking through it, I'm figuring out because even then we really hadn't talked about what it all was. You know, I just was sorting through it. Books they use for investigating. And as you mentioned. You mentioned you mentioned a film film uh, canisters. What were, what were the film canisters? What was in there? There was there were uh, three of them. One of them was a Tremonton UFO, which I I think you might have watched my video on there. Um, and then you had the Moline, Illinois from '67, which that I'm sorry that canister came with the first batch I got from the guy on Craigslist. And then there was also. A microfish, which I to this day I've never watched yet. I need to take it down to our library and, and check it out. It just says meteor report. And then there was another film in there that says UF, FTD UFO unclassified 66-M-1-56. Not sure what that means. If it's from 1966, 1956, but you can see a little white dot. I mean, it's nothing exciting. But it was something that I can't find any information on that one. That's one of the ones that it's just what's on the films, what's on there. Well, can't back find in the specific case. Back in the olden days, uh, as I was working on some of this stuff, I had learned that the films that had been collected by Blue Book, the, the films as opposed to the photographs and the slides, had gone to their audiovisual uh, unit out in California, and I was able to get a copy of the films. And there are some films in there that are just um, – one of them seemed to have a big statue in front of it, and there's a light that went behind it. There was one um, from the movie – I forget the name. Tony Franciosa was in it. It was a Western. And behind him, you see this white light go behind him uh, yep. while he's sitting on the horse. Uh, not a lot of information. That Moline, Illinois one was taken by a police officer, I believe – back yep. in the 1960s, um, and, and it was witnessed by a nun and a whole bunch of school children from a Catholic, Catholic school at the same time. But again, it's just a white dot. It's nothing, nothing right. exciting. The Tremont movie, which you have on your, on your uh, website there, has a big black line down the middle. And from what I've been told is this is a result of a scratch that was in uh, one of the duplicates they made it from, and each time they duplicated the film, the the scratch got bigger and bigger and bigger. So this big black line through it, but but that tells me that it was legitimately from Project Blue Book because it's got the scratch goes all the way through the film. So some very interesting things in that respect. Oh, and of course, when I seen that one, and and I had read, you know, I've I've seen movies, the the, the UFO movie. I've read about that one. I knew that he that the uh, Newhouse always said there were some feet missing off of the film. That was that's, and of course uh, that's the first thing I was wondering. Oh, do I have those missing feet? But that was once that I was, got it transferred, I didn't see anything different. And that's uh, the Newhouse is the photographer. He was a Navy uh, ward officer at the time, and his his actual job in the Navy was as a, a motion picture photographer. So he was in Tremont, Utah, when he. Uh, saw these things and well, was a wife, I guess, pointed it out to him. And they saw these, what they said were like two saucers put together and they stopped the car and he dug his camera out. And by the time he got the camera out, they had moved off into the distance. So all we really see are these white dots sort of meandering in the sky uh, around about noon, a very bright blue sky um, back in ni- July of 1952. The missing footage, however, uh, in, in tracing this stuff down, I found a letter from the Air Force, and the missing footage was actually vacation film of of Newhouse and his family, and the Air Force had taken that off and sent that material back to him, so they just kept the uh, footage. And there's nothing in the documentation, either from Newhouse or the um, military, that suggests that any footage of the actual 
crafts are missing. So I, that was kind of interesting because it, and, and Newhouse in, in letters that he was dealing with the Air Force at the time makes it clear that he's get the, all the footage is there. So this idea there's missing footage, and, and I know that's kind of been talked about for a long time, and Newhouse himself later on was talking about how he didn't get all the footage back, but I think it's pretty clear that he did and, and or got a copy of the film. The, the yeah. entire film. So, but the important point is, uh, Newhouse saw the objects close, and by the time you could get the camera out, they'd moved off into the distance, so you don't get the uh, uh, saucer-shaped um, view of them that would been most beneficial to all of us. So, the Newhouse film is there. These other films are there. Any um, any other photographs that were interesting? Yeah, well, yeah there was a uh, quite a few photographs. A lot of them are color. Well, the uh, in that when I was going through the boxes, I came the first thing that caught my eye was the glass slides from the Homer New York case of in '64, uh, which I'm, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with that one. There, uh, there were seven color glass slides in there, so I started. You know, that doesn't seem like something the Air Force would have had made uh, to me anyway. If they were making copies. Why, why would they have glass slides made? So I'm, I wondered if that was something original from the actual witness that sent them to the to the Air Force, or maybe they. Cause I know they said they sent color copies and slides. So I'm thinking these are probably the, the original slides from the witness. Yeah, it sounds and like it is, and they they would make copies of that and send the copies back to them, but they kept the originals for analysis. Yeah, I mean, I just don't. From everything I've seen in in my little bit of stuff. I don't know why the Air Force would have had glass slides made. You know, they would have, you'd think they would have, I mean, I'm not saying they didn't, but it just doesn't, seems unlikely to me. But those were in there. That uh, Another one that caught my eye was that, and I think I've showed it to you, um, that B-47 tail. Yes. Just the way it was wrapped up in an envelope and kind of shoved in the paperwork. And I asked him, you know, I would call the lieutenant, every once in a while and ask him about things in here. Of course, he didn't remember much. So, But he, that's when he was started to explain to me that he had put it together for the press. Yeah, and that's what he, what he told me as well. Uh, you said something else that was interesting here, and I'm, I want to go back to that. You said that you had a, um, an index from the Air Force of the pro, from the Project Blue Book files, and they were all – I mean, is it an – well, it's not an index through the end of 1969, is it? It's just an index up to – no, it's it's through the end of '69. It's four books, and there's okay. a picture of them on my page down there. Or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, three books. They're in the original folders that they came in, and they just and you can find them online, but everything's redacted. But and, it's you know just the three columns with the location yes. name and the evaluation. And you have you but, have the witness names in all of those. They're not redacted. Is that what you're saying? Right. They're last names anyway. And it does go all the way up to December 1969, well, back, December 31st. Back when we learned that the Project Blue Book files were available for research in the early 1970s, before they went to the National Archives, a friend of mine and I went to Maxwell Air Force Base. And one of the first things we did is get a hold of the index. And we went through and copied the names of the uh, for the unidentified, the photo cases and the physical evidence cases. So we could put the names back in. Uh, but but you've got everything there, which would make it much easier to to do. I and, do, and I I started as a project when I it took me a few months to go through this stuff and separate it, and I've I've made it for display. I take it to you know different conferences around this area, and I, I like to let the people of Ohio anyway get their hands on it, look through it. So I've put I've separated everything, put it in binders. But it took me a few months. But once I got through that, I was able to actually start sorting through things and, and spending a little time on them and looking at Well, we're going we're gonna to have to take a quick break here, our last break before we go away. Um, there is uh, additional information about much of this stuff that we've talked about today and other things at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. For some reason, I can't say blogspot today. And when we come back, we'll get a little bit more information about what uh, Rob Mercer has or receive from Project Blue Book and uh, see what else we can learn from him. So we will come back in just a few seconds. So stick around.
As host of Dialogue with Divinity, I am thrilled to join the Exxon Broadcast Network and their growing number of affiliates. My quest for a connection to the divine ignited my successful career path as an international spiritual counselor for over 40 years, an author of four books, and well-known metaphysical educator. My clients call me their spiritual mama. So my job is to offer you a radio show to help you grow spiritually with wisdom and get specific tools from guests who are experts in their field. Tune into Dialogue with Divinity and be part of the conversation with spirit. My goal, your happy soul. For more information, please visit my website at johannacarroll.com. Coming soon to the Exxon Broadcast Network is a different perspective with me, Kevin Randall, as your host. We'll be taking a close look at what is happening in the world of UFOs today with side trips into the paranormal. Guests will range from those who are household names to those who have a different perspective on a variety of topics. No topic will be taboo, but there will be tough questions asked as we all search for the truth about UFOs, the paranormal, and those things that excite us. Sometimes we'll agree with a guest and sometimes we won't, but we'll try to keep the program topical. For those of you who like to read, be sure to visit www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and remember to listen to the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at www.xzbn.net. This is Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. Now in Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Afterlife expert Roberta Grimes was the first one to say that dying can be fun. Now her best-selling book, The Fun of Dying, is available in stores worldwide. So if you wonder whether death ends life, how it feels to die, or what heaven might be like, The Fun of Dying was written for you. And if you have always been afraid of death, or if you worry that your life has no meaning, let The Fun of Dying ease your fears and bring new meaning to your life. Nothing said in The Fun of Dying is based on the teachings of any religion. Instead, Roberta draws on evidence to explain how death happens, how it feels, and what comes next. A lot of the best death-related evidence was produced in the first half of the 20th century. When it is put together with recent discoveries, it tells a consistent and amazing story. Roberta Grimes blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Her wonderful book, The Fun of Dying, is available on Amazon and at stores worldwide wherever books are sold. We have returned from a trip to the blog spot. I say that because I can't apparently cannot pronounce that word. Anyway, for those of you who missed it, uh, additional information is always available at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And for those of of you who are interested in the Roswell case, of course, take a look at Roswell in the 21st century because it always helps uh, to have all that information. When we went away, we were talking to Rob Mercer, who has managed to collect a great deal of information from the... uh, Project Blue Book, I was going to say the last days of Project Blue Book, and what I mean by that is this is information that was apparently collected by a form of one of the officers of, of Blue Book when it was closing down, and it was information he didn't think should be destroyed, so he hung on to it for all these many years, and Rob Mercer is now 
I guess, the caretaker of that material, and he's put an awful lot of the information that we've been talking about today at the on the uh, Miami Valley UFO Society uh, website, so you can take a look at it there. You can see the movies. You can see some of the slides that we've talked about today, so you can take a look at the, all of that kind of thing on his, uh, on his website. Uh, so when we went away, well, I guess one of the things that came out as you and I were kind of talking here just a moment ago is that some of this material was classified or marked classified when you got it. Is that correct? Uh, everything was unclassified except I was, you know, right as I was preparing for the show here, I found a, a couple pages from that uh, Florida case that the lieutenant was talking about the other day that interested him. And, I mean, they, they it says for official use only at the top. Nothing okay, says, and it's got the witnesses, social security numbers, everything on it. Well, Things for, that, for official use only is the lowest form of classification. And, okay, okay. and, and it uh, doesn't require safeguarding and that sort of thing. And compromise of that information isn't that important. So even though it's sort of technically classified, it really isn't. And uh, quite a number of years ago, uh, when Blue Book was given to the Air Force Archives and then went to the National Archives, anything that was in there was technically declassified so we're we're in good shape there even even though it's a very low level of classification so uh, well i'll look on fold three and make sure that this stuff if it's not on there i'll make sure i pass it on to you and show you what it is okay i but the other thing about fold three is they've got an awful lot of the blue book materials on there but in my discussions with david rudiak about the socorro case it comes out that apparently they didn't um uh, copy everything to fold three it's not all there there's there's some okay. gaps in what they have, uh, especially okay. on the Socorro case. So, so we well, know that Fold Three is a wonderful place to go for looking at the Blue Book materials, but it's not necessarily everything that is available. Well, I don't know how the Black Vault was, but I compared that same file against it when it was still had when they still had their Blue Book files online, and and it seemed close to the same to me. But I also found some pages here where the Air Force was discussing with Russia asking them who investigated their UFOs. And they also say for official use only. So I'll have to, they're in the same folder that I had set aside about a year ago and hadn't even gotten back to. So I'll have to look into that a little bit more. So you're, were, saying, uh, you're saying you're saying that the United States Air Force communicated with, at that time it would have been the Soviet Union, to see what they were doing with UFOs or who their UFO guys were or what? You know, it's basically just a, a memo or a, there's, uh, there's actually some handwriting on here, too, that might come in handy for us in trying to figure out who wrote those notes. But it's basically just a correspondence uh, between uh, asking who uh, – they're asking – I haven't read the whole thing yet, but they're asking who investigated their UFOs, asking about a, a discussion that they had with the news media in 68. But I know they're original because all the writing on them is in ink. There's nothing, you know, obviously Xerox to their – a lot of original notes out of their desk, which is what most of this stuff is. I mean, when he, you know, the lieutenant cleaned out the desk and got all this stuff out of there. Well, that's what he said. It was it was not necessarily uh, part of the official files, but it, it, in looking at the material you you've sent me and other material, it's clear that it is copies of the official files of, from the time. Yeah. So there's an awful lot of good information in there. Oh yeah, and there's a lot of notes like. Oh, another something else that was in there is a Xerox copy of ex, uh, Incident at Exeter, and it's a, it's a, a totally Xeroxed, but it's it must have been J. J. Allen Hynek's copy because his name's at the top, copied. But then somebody has wrote, and inside of it, he had made all kinds of notations and notes, underlined sentences, and then somebody has went back with red ink and done the same thing, numbered pages on the front of it, and put notes inside. So. Whoever was investigating at that time, you know, had read that book for whatever reason and found some interest. I don't know if they used them for reference. But a lot of these books have notations like that in them. Where they, and, you know, I mean, that's where, to me where the history comes from, knowing them guys are sitting there investigating these, looking through these books for answers, you know, and, and information. Well, that's this always is everything, been, all the tools they had. This has always been sort of the interesting thing about looking at the Project Blue Book files, 
when, when you can see them, because you can see the notes that the guys who were working on the files made. And it gives you kind of an idea of what their mindset was uh, or what was of interest to them. Um, and, and little notes like, you know, they'll circle something that's kind of ex esoteric and say, you know, this is important or, um, you know, this is really irrelevant or things like that. So you get an, in you get an interesting feeling for what was going on at uh, Blue Book at the time and, and talking to Murano about this, you know, you, you get the idea that at the end there, they were fairly serious about what was going on, but well, they they were only getting cases from from the um, Ohio area. And I went back and looked at the index after he said that to me and discovered that the vast majority of the cases came from Ohio and Indiana and uh, Michigan, right around that area. And uh, they got very little information from the rest of the United States. Well, I went through that, those books, the indexes, and I've, you know, I, 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 first of all, when I told him I had those books on that very first conversation, he told me, he said, you know, I probably shouldn't say this, but he said there might be cases in those books that didn't make it to Maxwell. I mean, that, that was his exact words. So, you know, that's what got me looking into these books a little more. But how do you, it's, it's a hard thing to just look at and know the answer to. So I sat down and tried to count the cases, you know, month for month and see what history says and the numbers I have. And nothing matches up. I mean, there's a lot of different numbers out there. But I did do a count, and then during all 21 years for Project Blue Book, 1,124 of the cases were from Ohio. So roughly 11% of them is and, the number I came up with. And from what he said, uh, and, and you know, looking at the history of Blue Book, we also know that, that if the case was solved, there may not be an official report sent to Blue Book. You know, it was right. solved by the local, the local uh, UFO guy, and they didn't bother sending it sending it to Blue Book. There's an awful lot of cases where it's labeled as insufficient data for a scientific analysis, which is not an answer, but it also doesn't, doesn't fit into the unidentified category. And I think I made a survey once and discovered that like 40, 45% of the cases were un, uh, insufficient data for a scientific analysis. So there's an awful lot of unexplained cases in the Project Blue Book files. And some of those w that were insufficient data are in fact insufficient data. You really can't say, see much about it. Yeah, that's true. And a lot, I've got a lot of memos and, and they'll just say info only, no case. You know, a lot of paperwork like that. Or that there's, or, or at the, at the bottom of the index pages, there'll be um, information only cases and it's like newspaper clippings and that sort of thing. Yeah. As opposed to. And that's to, another thing. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. That's another thing they had. There was a, a, just a stack of newspaper clippings all the way back to the early fifties. Just anything that discussed about a UFO. They had collect, you know, somebody had taken the time to collect them, well, and some Rupert, of them may be case related. Ruppelt said when when he took over Blue Book in 1951, when it was still Project Grudge, that one of the first things he did was sign up for a clipping service, so yep. that that was a way to get leads to cases. So there would be an awful lot of interesting information there that they may never have gotten to simply because of the uh, workload that and came down, especially in '52. Yeah, so I got a lot. You know, there's. A hundred or so news clippings in this group. It's probably all that they had, I guess. And something else they collected, which is funny to me, and, and I've got some of them on there, uh, comics and cartoons. Even so much of them, there's napkins in there that have a picture of an alien on them. For whatever reason, they kept all that stuff. <laughs> they were just in a folder. I put them all in a binder. And then I've got a few on the webpage here where they actually doodled on and put notations on. You may have noticed the one on there with Clinton Ella where he's a uh, hypnotizing a crowd or somebody wrote Quintanella's name above it um, in red ink. Well, it had to be one of the guys working there on the swamp cast. But there was another one. Somebody wrote Lieutenant, uh, Captain Gregory's name above a, a guy in a car. And Captain Gregory, for those of you who do not know, was one time the chief of Project Blue Book in the uh, late 1950s, I believe. Yeah. yeah, he was the first one that came in that they, they really wanted to debunk everything. Um, that's what they said he was hired for. So, yeah, uh, that was uh, that was the impression that a lot of us got. That looking back at the history of Blue Book was that uh, after Rupelt uh, left and it kind of fell into disrepair, uh, they brought they finally brought somebody else in and re kind of vitalized it. And, and Captain Gregory was rabidly anti uh, extraterrestrial alien, so his attitude was these things can all be explained in some fashion. 
Now, uh, two things that the lieutenant was excited about me getting was one of them was a letter from uh, Carl Sagan to Quintanella, and I've got it on my page there. But I've also had a handwriting expert look at it and tell me that that's not Quint, um, Carl Sagan's autograph on there, probably a secretary's. But he was, the lieutenant didn't know that. It was just something that was there when he got there and he was excited about. And then the film that's on there of Quintanella doing the interview, I don't know if you've had a chance to see that yet, but that's another film. It was in a box from a TV station in Virginia. And it was the lieutenant asked me if I had a chance to see it. He said that was something that was in the back of a desk drawer. He didn't know what it was, but he, as he was throwing stuff away, he's like, I'm going to keep that and see what it is later. Well, Rob, uh, I, Rob, I got to tell you, we're out of time. Okay. I appreciate I appreciate it. It's been fascinating. The website, right. for those of you who'd like to look at this stuff, is the Miami Valley UFO Society. So take a look at it. Uh, more information will appear at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for being with us today. <laughs> 